0: Why is that the party? Why is that important? The podcast is called Why Is That Important? Hey there and welcome to Why Is That Important? Where regular people come for interesting ideas and perhaps a little debate. I'm your host Joe Wanger and I'm here with my co-host Andrew Martin. Top of the morning, unless it's not morning, in which case top of the whatever it is for you. <laughs> and this week we debate, woohoo! It's a good one. So yeah, I'm. I mean, we don't. I wouldn't really call it a debate. It's not like what you think of in your like standard presidential debates, especially if you watch the last presidential debates. <laughs> um, but we're talking about politics. That's our our overall um, topic for the next for this this episode and the next two. And specifically this week, we are talking about tax reform and universal basic income. And we invited uh, two of our friends, or old classmates, you can determine which is which. Uh, one's named Casey Rule, and the other is Jim Coburn, and they, they do a brief introduction in our conversation, so I don't feel like we need to go into uh, into much, but um, it was an enjoyable conversation. It, it's a little longer than, than our, most of our podcasts, but I feel like... I learned a lot, and it was really fun to. Even though I didn't talk
1: a lot, I learned a lot, and
0: and it was enjoyable. I mean, what would what, what are your what were your thoughts going into all this, Andrew?
1: Well, first of all, I just want to say I'm kind of flattered that you felt you both learned and enjoyed that conversation. I think it's a little bit uh, not everyone's favorite, might be the kind way of putting it. Um, I love talking about this kind of stuff. Ideas in general just make my mind run. So this is an opportunity. Uh, for me to explore ideas and hear what other people have to say. So I'm was i was, I'm pumped for all of these. I'm especially pumped for this one. Um, I feel like Jim and Casey are two really interesting people. They're mm-hmm. I don't know either of them super well, uh, so it kind of helps in some ways to not have, a, you know, know exactly what they're like and what their positions are on everything because it, it allows me to really come at it kind of a with a clean slate in some ways, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yep. Yeah, I mean, I know Jim really well, and Casey, um, we went to high school and knew him a little bit back then. But, I mean, since then, he's had a lot going on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if if debate isn't really your thing and you're thinking, no, oh, I'm not even going to listen to this, I encourage you to just give it a chance. Um, I feel like... This was more of a discussion than it was a debate, and uh, we had some th- some things that we agreed on, and we had some stuff that we were all kind of going, eh, I don't know that I would agree with that, and here's my position, and um, the nice thing is we all came to the conclusion that we we as America should not be like North Korea. I think that's definitely the, the big success to take out of we, it.
1: We did come to an agreement on that. That is true. We did,
0: yep universal agreement. Unless so. you're North
1: Korean, then there might be a little less. <laughs> but if you're a North Korean and you're listening to this, wow, you have got to have better things to do. Like, I don't know, <laughs> depose your leader. That'd be a great thing to try and do. We'll help. There's plenty of people
0: over here that will help you. Will you? I, I, don't, I don't know how we could help.
1: Joe has an idea. I don't know what it is.
0: I, I mean, I didn't say I have an idea, but yeah. All right. Well, hey, with uh, without further discussion from us, here is our debate on tax reform and universal basic income. All right, guys. Hey, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, I, I've been looking forward to these. Um, we Last week, we recorded with um, some different people talking about the Netflix documentary, What the Health?, and that was exciting. But I've been most excited for this because I think uh, it's important for people to be able to talk about politics and discuss things and be able to get along afterwards. And too often it seems like everybody just wants to stick to their headlines and not have a discussion. So I'm I'm, I'm exceptionally excited for this. And I think you guys are all cool people. So that makes a big difference too. Um, so we have, like we talked about in, the, in our introduction, uh, we've got Jim Coburn and Casey Rule. And so I'm going to have them answer a question beforehand instead of doing it at the end. Uh, and that is the what's one book or, or something that you're either reading or listening to that's inspiring you. So let's start with Casey. Um, go ahead and just uh, give us a little bit of, little bit of background information of, of who you are and um, answer that question.
2: Sure, so I am a software developer and composer. Uh, I'm living in New York now, been here for about two years, Uh, came out to work for Morgan Stanley um, as a software engineer. I'm also the CTO of an ed tech startup here in New York, and I'm composing and conducting, um, and having a, a really good time experiencing New York City. After living with Cows's neighbors in Anvil, Pennsylvania, for <laughs> right. many
1: years, what are you? What are you reading or listening to right now? That's inspiring you.
2: So I've I've gotten much more into listening. Um, I, I, I get distracted easily, and I've found that if I listen to books on tape or podcasts at double speed, uh, it consumes my my focus enough that i don't get sidetracked by other things so i've been my really man into, uh, after
1: my own heart i listen to him <laughs> at 2.5 speed how do you get it up to 2.5 i've only been able to get it up to two on the podcast app well well wh- what do you you mean like it doesn't go faster than that or what
2: yeah on the, well on the the itunes uh podcast app i can only get it up to two maybe you yeah. have to like jailbreak the phone to get it
1: <laughs> I, I don't use any apple created products so i didn't know that there was a limitation so my app goes up to, i have never reached the top end of my app i don't know what it is just, well maybe just i'll have to switch fast. to android <laughs> now
2: <laughs> so anyway um <laughs> exactly i can't get the thing um, to read
3: but yeah no this is awesome
2: <laughs> yeah so i've been listening to a lot of things but one of the one of the um things i've gotten into uh Lately is Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Um, it's a really great podcast. They're long-form podcasts, like sometimes three, four, five hours, uh, where he really goes into depth into certain parts of um, you know big historical events, and you get uh, a ton of nuance. and I, I found it, it's really interesting just to like understand the. There are so many things that, that we learn about as abstract historical events and, and digging into the details just makes it all seem much more real and much more relevant to today. Um, how many of these, these things are
0: all right, cool. reflected that, now in current events? Is it two to three hours at double time or is that you're only like an hour and a half? Okay, all right.
2: Uh, original
0: time that's <laughs> true time. that's extra right, cool. incentive and Jim, double speed. same thing for you so uh,
3: politically I just uh, as it's relevant to the conversation I think it's interesting that I would mention well, one thing that's interesting about me is I have literally I've gone after an understanding of the different positions with just a tenacity that I haven't seen many other people do i don't I, I i saw so many labels and so much pointing and and banter uh between right and lefts and and conservatives and liberals so i, I worked really hard for a lot of years to to uh, kind of uh obscure that line uh, because i i just not not to obscure it but to, to kind of make it so that we can talk about you know be people instead of being labels and and uh it's, Interesting that after so long of doing that, I, I definitely become more aware and uh, of different things that I wasn't aware of prior. And and I think the chasm just keeps con- it continues to grow wider and wider. And I think it's uh, it's interesting for the, what, what that means for the future of our country. Um, as far as a book, I'm reading uh, uh, the Big lies is a good one. Dinesh Casey, don't don't hang up. <laughs>
1: uh, but that's What's it's the a book? really good book. What's the big lie about? Uh, the big is it lie about Wall Street.
3: No, no, it's a, it's very, very political. It, it's, uh, it's the author uh, is Dinesh D'Souza, and um, that's why I said don't hang up. Um, but it's, it's just a book that that is fully loaded on the conservative side. Um, but it's, it's got explanations for why. And I always, uh, like I said, you have to remember, I spent so many years trying to to understand both sides. Uh, I've only recently permitted myself to even use terms, you know, and, and to be able to, you know, I always condemned Fox News. I would never even consider it, though I, I'm a conservative. So, uh, you know, I I, I was uh, bending over backwards to make sure that I wasn't becoming part of the problem. And uh, Dinesh D'Souza is definitely a, a very right-wing, conservative individual right. with, with cool. a lot to say.
0: Cool. So... Our topic today is. Go ahead.
2: I know. I'm oh, sorry. I I, I realized I didn't. Um, oh, that's true. I didn't speak at all to my my personal politics. But I I think we're going to find that something we we agree on. Probably something we all four of us agree on to tie it back into the title of the podcast is is the um, importance of being able to communicate politically outside of these labels and outside of these, these uh, spheres of, um, you know, conservative and liberal. Um, So I, I would describe myself as a passionate moderate. um, Although I've been, I've been called everything from a a (laughs) sissy snowflake to a, a Putin bot, you know, on online. I, the, being a moderate you tend to get everyone angry (laughs) that's a good one (laughs) and that's how you know you're right where you should be (laughs) um yeah uh but I, i think um it's too many people assume that uh being moderate um, or, or being like a moderate conservative or a moderate liberal, or even being, you know, at, at a certain point in the political spectrum, but entertaining conversations across the aisle, I think, uh, too often that is seen as just, uh, mm-hmm. synonymous with, with apathy that if you are, if you're willing to, um, look into the other side, it's just because you don't want to, uh, commit to anything and i think that that's part of part of what has poisoned our political discourse is this idea that being a moderate is synonymous with being politically apathetic
1: and i think the definition of moderate should be that you have fiercely and strongly held beliefs that disagree with both parties on different things like maybe you're You know, you're in the conservative camp on immigration, but you're in the liberal camp on taxes or something. You know, where where I think there's a space for moderates who don't evenly line up with everything and cross the aisle on certain issues. But currently, there's no space for somebody who feels strongly about some things on both sides of the coin. So I think those people should also be considered moderates, but often they're not.
2: There's this. There's this. Uh, um, I think there's this desire for ideological purity on both sides. Um, <laughs> that's really, yes. uh, really flawed, and and it seems like that's been increasing over the years. Maybe it's just something that I'm I'm keyed into more, but it seems like that that's. It, I mean, I mean, that's this, where we're this headed. Great.
0: But, I have this that, great conversation, but uh, <laughs> do you feel like though? It's not a desire like I think that I think both sides think they're already there and they're unwilling to see the flaws in 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 their their perspective I don't know
3: yeah well if anybody cute chimed in with the, the, the idea they thought that they were already there uh, that's that's kind of like one of the first rounds of elimination you can have but it obviously, they're just out of touch more so than what would be required to have any type of an intelligent discussion about it.
1: I think what Joe's getting at is that in order to win your primary, where you're more likely to face a serious challenge from somebody more extreme than you, whether that be from the right or the left, you have to act like and vote like, well, of course this is the truth kind of thing. We, we know what the right thing to do is. We just have to have the majority in all... You know, power positions, and then we could make all the right choices. Because if you don't say something like that, it's very easy for somebody who has very little to risk to come along and run against you, saying, "This guy is willing to," he you know, ships. he gets he in bed ships. with them, he's a the other people, he's not against and then how do you all
0: the immigrants out? He's a liberal. Exactly,
1: <laughs> he, he's a. <laughs> or he's a conservative. Can you can you believe that he's Catholic? I mean, he should be such a good liberal, but here he is being anti-abortion. You know, he, we can't possibly abridge somebody like this in our camp. And so you have to be as you have to be as far to the edge as you can possibly not shouldn't shouldn't say as possibly. You need to be as far to the edge as you need to be to stave off that primary challenger, and that leaves no space for nuance and compromise. At least, that's my opinion.
2: It's certainly true for anyone who is is a um, primary presidential challenger. But I think that that same um, uh, I think that same thing carries over just to all of us, and in in the way that we are able to discuss politics because things have gotten so polarized and 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 bubbled in social media that there's a genuine fear on both sides. I think of, of expressing a view that's going to isolate you from, uh, your, the group that you identify with, because now political, um, political differences are seen as not, not jumping off points for nuanced discussion, but as like moral attacks. Let's talk about tax
0: reform. (laughs) With that in mind, let's dig it. It's a riveting (laughs) topic (laughs) that my wife is just so excited for us to talk about. Um, But uh, yeah, so tax reform and along with that, we're talking about universal basic income. So Andrew, why don't you do your best to define um, the parameters of kind of what we're talking about here?
1: Okay, so tax reform generally means changing the structure of the tax code. And that, for instance, when Reagan did tax reform in 86, they went from something like a dozen brackets or more, there was quite a few, down to four or five. So that significantly changed the structure of the tax. The other thing that the difference between tax reform and tax cuts is that generally tax reform is revenue neutral. Government gets the same amount of money, they just get it from different people in different amounts, essentially. So, you can say, well, this person pays more, but that person pays less, so we close this loophole, whatever. That's tax reform. Tax cuts is saying, well, let's just lower people's taxes, and generally means the government takes in less revenue. Um, They both have, I mean, they're, they're both things that we talk about from time to time in the political sphere, but Currently, um, tax reform is very much on the Republican agenda, although some people think that that's just code for tax cuts, but we'll see where that leads in the coming weeks and months. Universal basic income is the concept that, um, as a country, we're not comfortable having truly destitute people living among us, and in order to prevent that, we will make sure that everybody gets some level of money, some kind of basic income. And that is supposed to be sufficient to allow people to, at the very least, feed, clothe, and house themselves. And it's supposed to be in, well, it depends which camp you come from. Some people would say it replaces every single other government handout program, or or I shouldn't say just handouts. That's kind of a bit of a misnomer. Every other government support program. So it would replace your Medicare, your Medicaid. It would replace food stamps. It would re- replace Section 8 uh, you know, housing vouchers and all that kind of stuff. So all the ways that the government is currently trying to help people would all get replaced in uh, universal basic income. That's kind of the libertarian view. Um, there's a slightly more, I guess liberal would probably be the correct camp to put it in, view that is more like it's an assistance. We live in the wealthiest, uh, at least in some total, uh, country on the planet, the very least we can do is make sure that even the most helpless of us is never forced to be homeless kind of thing and the best way to do that is by giving people resources to make the best possible decision for themselves um, and that's you know that would be a more conservative view of from a liberal standpoint and then the most liberal would basically be um, everybody deserves money on some level everybody deserves resources and so we believe that you know every we will do what it takes as a society to make sure that everybody has money on on, at some level it's you know I I don't want to I don't want to turn people off but there is a certain level of socialism that we will socialize income such that everybody gets at least an equal minimum so that's kind of like the three basic camps: kind of a libertarian camp, kind of like conservative liberal camp, and then like really liberal liberal camp that are that are currently okay, discussing so it most anybody seriously. anybody want
0: to open up the floor and uh, make give some thoughts about those?
3: Uh, and Sweden, I just you neglected to mention, isn't it already in practice in Sweden?
1: Finland, you were close not, i mean you're, you're on the right uh, right yeah. peninsula, but Finland is beginning a small trial where of randomized so they 're actually doing a control they 're doing something really, really smart, which is actually really difficult to do in governance, which is a controlled trial, so they randomly picked people and gave them a universal basic income, and they 're going to compare them against people to whom they did not give a universal basic income, and both have been picked randomly. And we'll find years. out in the coming years, probably, yep. what, if any, discernible effect it had. Two years is that the length of it? So there's actually a couple of there's a couple of instances of this being tried in various forms. There's none that have truly been a universal basic income. Uh, often, what's pointed to is Alaska, where they have their oil fund money that every Alaskan, if you live in Alaska, you get a check. And generally, it's been a about $1,000 a year, but it varies based on the price of oil and how much they sell and the, how well their um, whatchamacallits have done. What are they called? Investments. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, um, I, I agree. <laughs> but they're... Th- yeah, whatchamacallits. You know. <laughs> the whatchamacallits where you give them oh, the some here. money and they give you more money back. <laughs> um, anyway. Oh,
0: that's right. That's,
1: right. <laughs> now you, that's where you give them drugs and they give you more money back. <laughs> this is where you give them money and then they give you more money back. <laughs> Anywho, Alaska has a, a kind of a form of a universal basic income, but it's variable and it's not nearly as much as what has been proposed um, Richard Nixon was actually the first president to bring this up from a presidential standpoint It's been debated basically for the better part of 100 years but Richard Nixon actually floated the idea and never really went anywhere in part because the study they began trying um, before they had a chance to really finish it up and look at the data People were trying to parse it for information that supported their viewpoint, and it kind of got torn to shreds by both sides because they used it for their own ends. Surprise, surprise. But uh, that's kind of history of UBI. Um, but let's start with tax reform, because I think that's actually kind of an easier topic. <laughs> and so I guess maybe the thing to do would be say a little bit about... Someone say tax reform is an easier topic. Than- I know, Right. Welcome to the crazy world of politics and money. Um, So currently, the tax system we have, um, what do we have? Five tax brackets, I think. The lowest is 10%, 10, 15, 25, 32, and the top is 36.5 or thereabouts uh, for personal income tax. The other piece that is currently involved is the United States OECD record high level of 35%. Uh, corporate income tax, although it's very rare for corporations to actually pay that, because there's lots of loopholes. That's also the same for people in the upper end of the tax brackets. They rarely pay that uh, functionally. Although there is the alternative minimum tax. Um, one of the things that is being looked at at being removed or changed would be loopholes. And one of the loop I shouldn't say loopholes that puts a connotation on it that I'm not comfortable with. One of the deductions that you can take is a, a state and local tax deduction, where you are allowed to deduct the money you paid to your state and municipality. Uh, you're allowed to d- deduct that from your federal income taxes. So let's say you make one hundred thousand dollars, but your state and municipality take twenty thousand. The federal government only taxes you on eighty thousand. So that's essentially what that's looking at. Didn't know that. Which means
0: I feel like I've been getting screwed.
1: <laughs> what do you mean? What?
0: Oh, okay. All right.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> you haven't. Trust me, you haven't. Um, however, if you live in a state with really high taxes like New York or California, um, basically New York and California or high tax states get their cut first, which means as they raise taxes, people's burden isn't necessarily raised proportionally. So if you're in a high tax bracket and your state raises your taxes, your federal taxes might actually go down some, especially if it drops you with, uh, an income bracket, um, and getting away, removing that, removing that deduction would mean that all of a sudden a whole lot of people are paying a lot more in taxes because, you know, that mythical person who was making 100000 and paying 20000 in state and local taxes all of a sudden has to pay federal taxes on those 20000 as well, even though they never had a chance to spend it or do whatever they wanted with it, they have to pay taxes on it. It's relatively, it's really unpopular in large high-tax states, which tend to be liberal. So the conservatives who are currently controlling all three uh well the legislative and executive branches of government are uh are relatively okay with that, so that's kind of where we're at just as a baseline um, and I guess my question republican um representatives to those states they're the ones that are uh yes uh, yeah, openly
2: that, against those
1: that that is a very good point um, the republican representatives, especially from the rural areas like upstate New York and the Central Valley in California, tend to be like, you know what? I actually have some really wealthy constituents that would really not like this, so how about we not do that? Um, and as we all know, as has been demonstrated over the past number of years, Congress is held hostage by vocal minorities frequently. So with that in mind, maybe we should you know start with a question. Casey, what do you think a good tax structure should look like? broadly speaking progressive regressive flat tax sure all right well let me let me open by saying
2: and and i'm i'm sure this is by design one of the things that i i like about this conversation is that none of us are tax policy experts um and you know this, this is such a hugely important topic for everyone across the political and socioeconomic spectrum and and these it's a really difficult topic to talk about from a layperson perspective, um, so I, I'm definitely not going to pretend to know the answer to uh, these questions that people much smarter and more informed than I on uh, on these issues uh, have. Yeah, been we're all in agreement. We're definitely all like regular decades. people that um, are not
0: getting paid to fix the tax tax code. <laughs>
1: Yeah,
0: that's
1: true. Yeah, but Andrew came out of the so, gate like a am I'm, I'm just a full-on nerd. That's what's going on here. We're basically... We're Monday morning quarterbacking uh, tax policy. So, uh,
2: <laughs> um... Yeah, but uh, broad strokes. I, I definitely uh, think that a progressive income tax is important. Yeah. Um, One of the reasons is because when you look at the total tax burden, especially when you look at sales tax, um, sales tax is effectively regressive because people with less money tend to spend a larger amount of their money on uh, things that they're buying rather than putting it in savings or investments. And so sales tax is effectively regressive. And so a progressive income tax um, is is partially worked to uh, counteract that, um, but I also think that as a society, um, the the society as a whole benefits from uh, having a tax structure that encourages um, uh, socioeconomic mobility and a progressive tax structure. Uh, a you know you you said earlier um, you don't want to. Uh, Turn anyone off with the word socialism but um i, I we already practice uh socialism to some extent uh, socialism isn't a, a dirty word it is a a part of um our current uh tax policy and our current uh welfare policy the social security is exactly that it is it is everyone puts into the pot and and gets the same out
1: it is it's just like a microcosm of socialism so yes but that's everyone puts into the pot (laughs) and the baby boomers get out so i'm we'll see how that pans out
2: so there's there is a i think there's a more fundamental question about what is our our moral obligation what moral obligation do we have to care for the poor um but you can actually skip right over that larger question if you want and jump into what's the societal benefit of, of making sure that we have as much socioeconomic mobility as possible and doing everything we can to reduce or eliminate poverty. So that's my broad strokes
1: view. I like that. And the question there then becomes, is tax policy the right way to do that? But we'll get there. Jim, um, ask you from a, a broad strokes perspective, like, what what do you wish or hope or, you know, if, if it were magically politically feasible to do, what would you think taxes should look like?
3: Well, the idealist in me wants to see much more uh, simple taxes. Just, uh, I like percentages. I like, uh, uh, you know, I'm I, looking over what Trump just proposed. Uh, the The fact that they're going to Twenty-five thousand four hundred for joint filers. That's a perfect example of what I, I believe they're trying to simplify it. Because the the folks who are are uh, more, tend to be more philanthropic are going to, you know, they teeter in and around that range. You know, when you when you when you're doing your itemization, you're doing you're, you're claiming everything you can get up to a certain point, and they're really serious about making sure that people that that want to be you know, generous are going to be able to do it with a much more simple way of, of uh, filling out your taxes. So I, it, simplicity is the key, and I'm 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 a big fan of small government. I, I think uh, the more the government gets involved, I, I you know it's it it's complicated. I don't try to pretend to have clarity on this, but um, and I know we are a we we are a blend. We have very social organizations, some very social thinking. Um, or socialist type thinking, but uh, as far as we can get away from uh, from more money, more government, more jobs for you know people that are employed. I mean, I think I think over the last five years, I read somewhere that we 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 neared I don't know it might have been late thirty percent, maybe forty percent of the uh, uh, folks receiving incomes were were government jobs, you know, or could be a Attached to something government wise. I just, I just think it, it gets out of hand, and, and fascism is a real concern for me with with a lot of what we're dealing with today. So I, I, I want to make it simple. I want government to, you know, we, we do some wonderful things. We have a great nation, and there's some, you know, really passionate people that care greatly what they're doing out there and, and trying to make it the best for everybody else. And there's other people that are, are trying to make it the best for themselves. I think I, I want to point out one easy example. Um, in North Korea we have the perfect and, and I'm a I'm a Christian I have a Christian belief and that hopefully doesn't attach anything to me politically because it's you know Joe you, yeah you, you and I have gone through so many conversations that you know we maybe start that way <laughs> we understand that about each other but not a, you know the listeners don't necessarily but because of my faith I you know I just think that these uh, uh, for taxes you know for people that are, are going to live off of the, the UBI uh, for example. We, we just don't have that. Bur- the, the government shouldn't have that responsibility. I don't think, I mean, I, I'm looking for someone to make an argument to the contrary that I, that I'm, I'm willing to, to receive. But I, at to this point I don't. And when I look at governments, I'm kind of a going back and forth between two topics here. Forgive me, but I started with North Korea. Um, that is the perfect picture of somebody who exists to, take care of himself and then everybody else pays for it and i think we have a tendency to go that way when we're you know if we're ahead of a corporation you know we can tend to get greedy but but i know if you try to tell me that somebody's salary should be capped or their bonus should be capped i'm going to ask you who do you think you are to even have that opinion it doesn't it doesn't even figure into the formula we're a capitalist nation and We shouldn't have opinions on things like that, but at the same time, you know, I want—I'm looking for the heart of the individual and people that are trying to do the right thing and get to the right places. I think simple taxes are going to make that a little bit easier, and I think that uh, we shouldn't be like North Korea. (laughs) And that's it. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I think that's a pretty easy. I think we can
3: find common
2: ground there. Yeah.
3: Yeah. If you really look at that, there we go. Our first. if If you look at the Stasi, you know, you look at. Everything about the German, you know, occupation of Berlin. When when you look at the way these people treated the the individuals and in the community, the members of that community that have been living there forever, they were they everything they did under Hitler's regime. Everything that was done was to to, to in in hope for, in anticipation of something better for the individual, and and that's exactly how North Korea is. That's exactly how. Uh, we have a perfect example under Stalin. We have an example under Hitler. Uh, Mussolini didn't—not—not not quite as much, but these—this is a real issue. And and I think that you know I'm—that's why I, I start by mentioning the idealist in me. I look at that. What was that movie with Mister Smith goes to Washington?
1: Oh, classic.
3: Yeah, this is an outstanding Jimmy Stewart. Film. It's my heart that, that that everybody would go to Washington like that. <laughs>
1: Unfortunately, so- they do not. So, a um, couple, of, couple of thoughts. One, on Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, I actually met um, a Republican operative, uh, a political operative, and she was working for um, a consulting firm doing opposition research and whatnot, and she had a, a prospective Republican candidate that she was talking to, and she was trying to help them think through their positions and, and you know, lay out a, a good campaign position, and she said, you know, what's your position on such and such a topic? Uh, I don't really remember what it was. It doesn't really matter. But the prospective candidate was like, whatever polls well, like, I don't really care about that. But, you know, whatever my base says is important to them, that's what I want my position to be. Uh, well, that's
2: and That's another can of worms is, is is it the res- responsibility of a representative to use their, is, is it a rep- representative's responsibility to overrule the will of the? their constituents if they feel like they have better judgment or, or a moral objection to what is polling well. But or, I, I don't want to take us too off.
1: Yeah, well, I guess what I was trying to say there was, um, that was a, you know, how how do I make this better for self situation? He was doing whatever he thought it would take to become elected. And that was her moment of like, I got to get out of this. I got to do something different. <laughs> um, and But I think about that often. I'm like, you know what? We have no idea on some level if who we're voting for, if they really believe what they're saying, or if they think that's just what it, what you have to say to get elected. Um, and back to back to Casey's point, though, I think he makes a really, really good observation that ultimately the very fundamental of tax policy is what is the government for? What does it do? Do we believe that we have a societal obligation to our fellow citizens, or do we believe that? You know, ultimately, it's the work of the markets. And you know if you're seventy five and too decrepit to work and you haven't managed to save up enough in the previous seventy five years, too bad. You're out in the street with no food, which was kind of the situation that created social security. there was people didn't like the fact that you could see destitute old people out on the street. Or do we live in a place that says, you know what, you should be rewarded for what you've done and the way you've contributed to society. And over the years, or over maybe not even years, you had an ingenious idea. You were very productive in one way or another. And we think that that value should accrue to you ultimately and not to anyone else. Um, and I think, I think we, we desire to strike a balance. And where that balance is really varies from position to position.
2: And also, I think, to, to Jim's point, I, I if I if I understand you correctly, I don't think that you are advocating at all that people should be left out in the street, but rather that it, it isn't the the role of government to step in. But but there are other organizations that would be more effective at um, caring for the poor than a yeah, I think large government is- bureaucracy.
3: Yeah, and people taking care of their family. You know, we've lost... We've lost the respect and, and admiration that I believe is valuable for for our elders. These are these are important people. The country's built on them, and we, we seem to kind of brush it aside. You become a liability at some point. You're you're no longer a, an income earning unit, an IEU, is it IEU? So you're you're no longer, you know, you 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 your vote doesn't matter as much, or you know, th- we just we're trying to strip away the the value that should be there innately, but. I know that's, you know, I can't fix all that, especially with with the tax question.
1: Yeah. Well, and and that's a very good point is that because we have decided to use tax policy as a mechanism to for social engineering essentially that, you know, we're we're saying we'll create, you know, the mortgage in- interest tax deduction because we believe it's a good way for People, it encourages people to buy homes, and we think buying homes is a good way for people to build wealth, and we think that it's important for people to build personal wealth in a way that they're ultimately responsible for. Ergo, we will let you deduct this value. However, it then skews towards the wealthy who can buy bigger, more expensive homes, and it creates more of a value for them than for someone like myself, who I even if I itemize everything I could deduct and I, I bought a home, it doesn't even add up to the... the um, the basic deduction. So it's not worth it to me to have a mortgage interest deduction. If they removed it, it wouldn't cost me a penny. Um, but we use the tax code for social engineering when that's not really what it's des- meant for in so many ways. It's meant for generating revenue for our government to function by. But because the government then spends that revenue, it's kind of inherently linked to social engineering policy.
2: Well, the social engineering policy feeds back into uh, growth of the economy, which feeds back into revenue generation. so if if I think you could you could definitely argue that there is a role in tax policy for trying to shape a more robust economy, and shaping a more robust economy is not entirely disconnected from what we would call social engineering.
1: I would agree, but what I would say is, uh, and this is kind of my position, simplify the tax code so that basically if you have an eighth grade education, you can figure out what your taxes should be and then create the other portions of the government should re- be responsible for that social engineering. If we want to have a system that's essentially the same as a mortgage interest tax deduction, like why do that on taxes? Why not have a, a, a little bureau... That writes those people checks, you know, and says, you know what, I think it's important for you to do this. Here's your check for being a homeowner. Thank you very much. Um, Because that would be a more honest way. It would certainly be a more transparent way. And it would be a much more straightforward, easy to understand way. And you can then look at your income and say, okay, this is how much money we have to spend. How should we spend it? Versus saying, okay, our policies and our income are completely intertwined, and if you want to change a policy, it changes how much income we earn, and if we want to change the income structure, it changes policies. For instance, um, and this is one of my personal pet peeves about tax policy, is that the health care issue is inextricable from tax policy because companies earn a tax benefit um, by providing health insurance for their workers. There's a long history of why that's even the case, but suffice it to say that companies—it was in companies' interest uh, originally, uh, financial interest—to start to begin offering health insurance and. It has remained in their interest because of the tax deduction. And so whenever your company says, you know what, we offer a great health care package here, what they're actually saying to you is, we think it's important to not pay you, but to keep the money for ourselves and deduct it off our taxes by sp- by spending some of it towards something that you can only use if you're sick. Um, so they're actually picking your pocket to line theirs, but calling and, and asking you to say thank you because they... Th- Act like they're doing you a favor, and the reason that exists is because of bad tax policy. That shouldn't be a tax issue. That's a separate healthcare issue, but now tax and healthcare are inextricably linked, and that's bad policy, in my opinion.
3: That's a good point. I like I like your recommendation. It's something to ponder.
2: Well, and I think you also. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I think you you. Made a very strong argument for universal basic income there as well. I'm, I'm, I'm in terms the of the transparency and simplicity and uh, predictability. You know, really knowing what your income is going to be, um, and and uh, rather than rather than having a complicated system of deductions, just having it all laid out um, exactly what's going to happen but I'm not necessarily saying that that's the strongest argument for um, well, for universal basic income but it I while you were describing that it reminded me
1: of a lot of the arguments I've heard for well, universal basic income the funny thing is I was referring to the government's income not the individual's income but you make a very valid point
3: well it's it, it once you get past the the you know the the Tremendous smack in the face at the thought of paying everybody uh, a basic income. <laughs> it's just it's so far fetched for so many of of us, you know. Just depending on your generation. But once you can allow the ideas to pour through, once you once you are willing to listen, it, it, a really good case could be made. I mean, it it, it it is simplifying everything. It's saying you know, and I'm not arguing pro or or against. I don't I don't have enough information on the subject, but I think that that's a, a a valid point. I think it could definitely simplify things. We're already paying all these different avenues. If we can just pay that, and and you know, certain things would be taken care of. I just it, it, inevitably, I think, what's going to happen though is just our government is going to get bigger again, and and I and there is no party that's less government, not at least not that's electable. You know, so we have this uh, conundrum.
1: It's, it's a conundrum if you don't see the government as a source of solutions. And I, I'm not saying you should. What I'm, what I'm trying to say by saying that is that when a hurricane hits Puerto Rico, people say, where was the government? They don't say, where was the church? And whether that's good or bad, what that ultimately means is that the people that are getting blamed are going to find a way to not be blamed. And currently, the best way for them to do that is by finding a solution to the problem, or at least the perceived problem, and that usually looks like money, and that means taxes. And while I completely agree with, with you, Jim, that the government's going to grow, not shrink, uh, I think so many people see the government as a source of solutions, whether it is or not, they perceive it as such that I don't really know how to reverse that trend. I don't, I don't see a practical way, and to your point, there's no electable party that's even trying to make that argument.
2: Well, there's there a galaxies. there's a question of scale, um, in terms of, it, to, at what scale is the government useful? Uh, what at what scale is the government a source of solutions, and at what scale is the the government a hindrance? To the, to the cons, yeah. Do the cons outweigh the pros? But the concept of government um, is that. We are are basically pooling our resources to provide some common good. That is the role of the government, uh, and there's certainly a debate on scale, but in terms of the fundamental role of the government, the the idea um, on you know until you, you get into like anarchy, uh, <laughs> there's there's a there's a common agreement that the government. Government is a, a, a source of support that we are all basically buying into um, it's it's you know in a lot of ways it, it it is a it is a cultural insurance policy you know we're using the government to um, and and a and a cultural investment that the um, I, I think across the political spectrum there's an agreement that things like the police and military and and uh, um, roads and uh, you know there there are certainly a, a great number of public services that, for the most part, we agree are useful, um, and all of those things are facilitated and and require taxation. So I think it's it's easy to get into the mindset that that taxes are a, a necessary evil, but I, I actually think. If that's the wrong way to look at it. I think taxes are an inherently good thing. Um, but you can have too much of a good thing. Ta- taxes are as a society coming together, pooling our resources to do something that we couldn't do as individuals. Um, and, and there is a scale at which that gives us, you know, we, you, um, you know, economies of scale, you get more efficiency at a certain point. Um, and then you reach a point where you're no longer benefiting from that. But I, I think how you frame the discussion of tax policy, uh, it, it it's important not to look at it as a necessary evil, but rather as a you know, this is something that that is is good if you find the right balance. You know, and I think you know that's kind of the 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 core of the moderate um, ideology is is that trying to, to label things as good or bad isn't really the a valuable way to talk about them. It's it's more about all things in moderation. Yeah. Well. Well. What's the what's the most efficient way to apply these um, ideas? What's the most? Where do you get the most benefit? And where do you reach the point where where do, you reach the point of diminishing returns, or you know, where do you reach the point of um, the point of no return, where you're you're spinning off into uh, North Korea? Um, but there's there's a there's a very very big difference between um, fascism and taxation, uh, and I think it's it's important to recognize that taxation is not inherently bad; it's not something that we put up with because uh, I guess we have to. It's, it's a, I see taxation. I see that, that organization of our society and, and government as something that is, it's successful. There's a reason why uh, we tend to organize ourselves in this way is because it is an efficient way for humans to, uh, operate together so i i would just push back a little bit on the idea that that taxation is a bad thing um it's it yeah, is a tool and you can overuse it or underuse it
3: i don't think i've ever heard anybody make that point so well casey that was a uh, very well said and i think uh the the key is finding that balance of where it becomes uh, because there's I don't think any of us can doubt we, uh, if you're paying attention, you've seen examples where the government is not spending the money wisely. You know, when, when people put in bids or they, you know, when, when you, when you're running a budget, you, you, you have to make sure you, you keep that, that line item in the budget or you don't have it next year. So everybody keeps, you know, growing in their budget because they just don't want to lose the money and, and, and just becomes so inefficient. I, uh, I wish you know we had a way through that, but exactly what you said, it is a good thing. It is a collective, a community, a sense of type of community, but not not always carried out so well.
1: Well, and when the income tax was new, it was seen as a civic duty. Like there were commercials being like, "Don't forget to pay your income tax," and especially during World War II, they took some of the. There were some famous actors in ads being like. Guess what I did today? I helped win the war. I paid my income tax. And that was before payroll deductions, so you actually had to write the government a check every so often uh, instead of the government just, you know, instead of getting their cut when you got paid kind of thing. So it, was, it wasn't it was nearly as hassle-free, put it that way. Um, and originally it was seen as a civic duty and, and something that you were, you know, you were, you were a good citizen. You were a good patriot for paying your taxes. And I think you're absolutely right, Casey. That it it, it's a balancing act between what things are is is it practical what services is it practical for the government to dispense and what services is it not practical and um, I think I think that's actually something that the United States of America has going for it in that we have multiple layers of government Um, the fact that we have fifty different examples of how democracy could play out happening at any given point in time. And from those, we kind of cherry pick the best ideas that seem to work the best on a federal level, or at least we had in times past. Currently, it seems like the best idea is just to do nothing. Um, but that's my own slight against Congress. Um, I think that's actually a huge benefit to us and that we're constantly experimenting and tweaking. And the fact that you know, California and Texas have gone radically different directions in the fact that Texas doesn't even have an income tax. There's no statewide income tax. They have a lot of uh, property taxes are the state's primary source of revenue. And f- the ramifications that has versus California, where I mean, one of the one of the California sees a significant increase in income tax every time a big Silicon Valley company has an IPO because all those people start earning money. In big lump sums, uh, that actually matters to California coffers. Which, when I when I read that, kind of blew my mind the first time. Um, so, but both of those states are finding ways to provide the services their their citizens expect it to on one level or another, and that's I, I think the state and municipality scale is important to keep in mind. That not everything needs to be the federal government's job. We have at least three layers of government everywhere in this country and while things like national defense you know interstate commerce and roads um, immigration policy some of that stuff certainly needs to be determined at the federal level absolutely like what's a right Andrew, and a, are, you saying,
3: are you saying you would have been fighting for the south in the civil war is that what you
1: just said to me you know jim <laughs> they had well, and that's the problem. You can't say states' rights without bringing up slavery. Um, I really wish the South hadn't made that right, the one that they wanted to fight about. Does that make sense? Like, they've made it toxic. But there is there is a point in saying, you know, we don't want federal education policy because California and New York educate their students very differently than Oklahoma and Wisconsin. And if we had a single federal education policy, yeah, some people would be happy, but some people would be really, really upset. And I would argue that most people would be really, really upset because it's no longer quite the thing they wanted. They might want more spending, they might want less spending, but you're actually going to please fewer people. And I think that, that idea can be spread further. Like, and I think healthcare is a prime example. I don't see any reason why healthcare needs to be done on a national level. Why don't we have California go for a single-payer model and see how that works out? You live in California, you have California healthcare, whatever that means. And if you live in West Virginia, you're on your own, and we'll see what that means. Or maybe that's a bad example. Nebraska, that's probably a more red state. You know, if you live in Nebraska, tough. You know, figure it out. We don't even have insurance here. It's just a pay-as-you-go model. And I'm not advocating for either of those models. I'm advocating for the idea of having 50 different experiments and see which one has outcomes that we as a nation like before we apply it to the whole country. And honestly, I think...
3: I couldn't agree with you more. Just say you're absolutely spot on. It's all these different... It's a very capitalist way of thinking. It's all these different business units that are trying different ways. It's a Google, it's an Apple, it's a Samsung. They're all trying to do it the best way. And that's what motivates people. And that's what gets people to... Do you know, be their best self and, and present their best ideas, and it avoids this this falling into these ruts of just doing what we always did because it, we've always done it. You know, it's, I agree with you
2: 100%. Let's hear from Casey. Sure. So, I, I think, um, I definitely agree with you that that is a major strength of the United States that the fact that we have this model where we can try things at a local level and at a state level and then. Uh, once they've proved themselves there, it can bubble up to the national level. I, I absolutely agree. That's a great model. Um, where I, I push back a little bit is the idea that that, that at those responsibilities, what falls to the state and what falls to the federal government, that that should be static. So I agree with you on the first part that the, the, there's a real strength in being able to discover at a state level what works, but then I think that the the consequence, the natural the natural consequence to that is to take what works and apply it more efficiently at a federal level. Um, And there are a few reasons for that. Um, One is that our in in this year, you know, right now, um, people are much more People move between states uh, for jobs. Um, And so let's take education, for example. So um, that's definitely something that's very contentious. I I know because I worked in, before I was on Wall Street, I was making math games for kids. I was uh, very closely um, working with uh, Common Core. And I know that Common Core is is one of, it's like (laughs) socialism. It's one of those words that scares a certain portion of the country um but there is value in having a national guidelines for um what is going to be taught in different grades because people are moving around um and if you've got a student who is moving from one state to another and they're they've got a totally different order of curriculum that they're there's not going to to be, they're not going to be able to jump into things. They're going to be. Uh, it's not going to be clear where to put them because they may be way ahead in some subjects and way behind in other subjects. Similarly, a lot of people go to college out of state. Uh, being able to have, you know, have a certain understood set of skills that are going to be applicable everywhere in the country. Uh, there's value in that. Um, and then there's also just the idea that. We have an obligation to everyone uh, um, to to try to give them the the best opportunities. So while it, it it you were talking about you know California can do one thing and West Virginia can do another thing, and you know if you're in West Virginia and you're not getting those benefits, you just deal with it. And I think abstractly uh, that's an easier idea to get behind than when you actually go and talk to. Someone who is living in that state doesn't have the means to move out, um, partially because they don't have the um, education infrastructure to to get that sort of socioeconomic mobility. To but do they have the ability
1: to vote? Yeah. So I guess I guess in my idealistic world, if everyone votes in their
2: self interest.
1: No. See, I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that far, because I think if you have everyone voting in their self-interest, you always get the politicians who return as much cash as possible to the people, in whatever form that looks like. And I don't think that's always a good idea. Um, I mean, we could, we could certainly have huge tax cuts if we just got rid of the military. I mean, we haven't really been attacked by an army in a really long time. Are we sure we need a standing army? I mean, our founding fathers largely would have said, no, it's a terrible idea. And, you know, we could return, what is it? I don't remember, $500 million or something, $500 billion to the American people. But I don't, I think we would all stand here and, or sit here, depending on what you're doing, and say, no, honestly, we need a military of some kind, Whether what si- whatever size you want it, that's up for debate, that's fine, but you need one. Um, and so that's why I don't think people should always vote in their self-interest. I think people should vote in their community's interest. Um, and I think you understand smaller communities much better than you understand large communities. I understand Middletown, because I live there. I kind of understand Dauphin County, bits and pieces. I sort of maybe understand Pennsylvania. I don't begin to understand the United States of America. I do not know why people like yourself (laughs) live in New York City. You wouldn't find me dead there. Actually, that might be the only way you'd find me there. So who who am I to say that I know how you should be governed? Who am I to say that, you know, This person who I want president should be your president in some ways. Now, obviously, we have to come to a collective idea about who we want to govern us, but about the things that don't deal with the nation as a whole, about the issues that can be localized, why not localize them? Why not make them the decision of as local of a body as you can possibly make it? I mean, put it this way.
2: I don't think that we are, I don't think that we really are as local as we used to be, the, the, the world has gotten flatter and certainly the country has gotten more interconnected And in the, you know, a hundred years ago, the idea that education policy in New York and California have nothing to do with each other was made a lot more sense. But um, I think that's, I actually, the, the example you gave with the military was, a, a, I want to jump back, back to that for just a second, because I thought that was a really good example of why, the role of the federal government versus the state government um, needs to be dynamic because you're right in, in the, the founding father's view um the, the federal government, it wasn't their job to have, have and it, it an national defense was the job of the state militias.
1: Well, the, so the idea was that the federal government would call up the state militias. So the federal government had the ability, but they shouldn't have a standing army. So it was kind of this little like halvesies kind of deal, and it never really worked that great.
2: But and and at the time, I think there there was wisdom in that, and I think most people. If you asked most generals today if that would make sense, still they would say no. I I mean I can't speak to that definitively, but that's my sense, and I think that it's really. Important to keep in mind that the role of states and federal government has to be dynamic. We have to be we have to be willing to adapt to how the world has changed. Um, and the fact that the fact that state lines are no longer as they're not as wide as they used to be. It's it's much more common for people to be moving around between states, which means inherently um, the role of that the state government is going to be different than it was a hundred years ago when people basically you know when, God, when a much greater God majority really of people report. yeah exactly.
1: exactly well and I don't think I'm arguing for a static definition of what's a state's job and what's the federal government's job or what a county's job is or what a township's job is I think what I'm arguing for is that that yeah, dynamism, anyway, the dynamic aspect would in sometimes push responsibility back down the ladder, not just up the ladder. And I agree with you that, you know, take education policy. Yeah. I think it's, it's absolutely important for a fourth grader in New York whose parents are wealthy coastal elites and decide to fly him out to California. Um, It's important that when he goes to his new school that he's still a fourth grader and not like half a sixth grader and half a second grader kind of idea. However, I don't necessarily think that the federal government needs to get involved in determining how that happens. And that's so I see the government, the federal government saying, "Okay, you know, teach multiplication in fourth grade, whatever. Okay, great. How do you do that? That's up to you, state. Just you need to meet these standards. You need to meet these guidelines. If you want help, we're certainly here. We have ideas. We've seen how other states have done it successfully and unsuccessfully, and we can steer you towards good ideas and away from poor ideas. Um, But we're not going to say tax people this much, and this is the size of your school, and this is how you organize your school, and this is how you hire and fire teachers and and that kind of thing. And I feel like that's what's happened in healthcare is that the federal government has gotten too into the nitty-gritties rather than saying, you know, this is the way, this is what we expect healthcare to look like. Um, It doesn't necessarily have to, but this is our expectation. And I understand the argument is going to be, well, that was the idea behind the statewide, each state setting up its own exchange, yada, yada, yada. However, that was definitely forcing each state into a methodology of providing that care, not just here's the level of care we expect. Instead, it was, you need to provide the care and it needs to look like this. It needs to function like this. And so I think that's where the ACA went a little off the rails. I think it had really good intentions and I think functionally, a lot of good ideas. Um, Some of them were poorly implemented. Some of them, states chose not to implement to their own detriment often in often cases. Um, But I do think that something like healthcare and education is something that states are competent and capable of handling on their own in ways that their citizens find most useful. And so if you have a really progressive state and they want a really progressive policy on those fronts, by all means, they should be allowed to have it. They should be given, you know, the keys to their own state's car. If you have a really um, conservative state, they should be allowed to try it on their own as well. That's how I feel, anyway.
3: one <laughs> Healthcare is
2: next week.
1: <laughs> we'll get there, good point.
2: Yes. Well, there's. I know we don't have education on the on the slate, but there's one thing that I wanted to touch on because it loops back around to um, uh, universal basic income. So you mentioned when you were talking about the um, uh, the the California New York example I gave that that uh, uh, it, it would be valuable for coastal elites um, being able to uh, transplant between schools in different states. But I actually think that that's not the that's not the case. that That I think is is the most pressing. Where I think we're going to see this uh, become more and more relevant. Um, automation is is absolutely shaking up the job market, and and automation and and outsourcing and those are not inherently bad things. Uh, that throughout history, there's been a concern that automation is going to um, uh, it's going to take away everyone jobs and, and destroy the economy. Um, and, you know, over and over again, we find a, a, a creative destruction that, yeah, we, we lose jobs in one area, but we gain them in, in another. And overall, the society becomes more, um, uh, more productive. But what ends up happening is uh, people lose their jobs and they have to often relocate to, to find other jobs. And and I think we're going to see that more and more as automation uh, continually shakes up uh, what, what, what jobs are available, that people are going to need to be relocating, not just within states, but between states. And you're, you're going to see, I think, a lot more lower middle class, middle class or working class families that are moving between state lines and have, uh, you know, students who, who we still want to support because we want to make sure that their parents moving to, to continue being productive members of society, that that's not disadvantaging those kids, uh, and getting a proper education because that's how we create social socioeconomic mobility. That's, that's how someone is able to, to move forward if, if moving between states for a job ends up being a penalty to your, your child's education then that's going to really restrict the, the, that sort of social
1: mobility you're making a fun, one fundamental error um, which so I read an interview with the CEO of United Technologies Corporation the owner of Carrier And he was talking about the plants that were getting shut down in Indiana. And he was saying he didn't understand why people were so upset, because just two hours away, there were more jobs that paid more, actually, that they needed people for. And they were willing to give these people that were being laid off jobs at this new plant at a higher rate. All they had to do was move two hours away. And he was saying, you know... When I was young, I started out in New York, and then I got sent to Chicago, and then I got sent to California, and now I'm back in New York, kind of thing. It's like moving for the job was just always part of life. The error he, and I think by extension you, are making is that if you're of a lower socioeconomic status, moving for a job doesn't actually make sense, because you're moving out of everything you know, out of your networks. And if people chose to move when they lost their jobs, we wouldn't see these coal towns that are full of jobless people. We wouldn't see old mill towns in South Carolina where people don't know what to do. And yet we see that because people are more comfortable dealing with life with no income in a place they're familiar with than going to some place they're unfamiliar with and potentially dealing maybe with the same issue but also maybe having income. It turns into the devil you know is better than the devil you don't kind of situation for many people on the lower half of the, the income ladder. And it's kind of arrogant, in all honesty, to assume that people will understand that the jobs have moved and that they move as well, if they leave what they're familiar with and the people they know and love, that they'll be able to continue being productive members of society, and that's more important to them than all the other benefits of staying where they're at. And so I agree with you that if moving is punishing your child's education, that it, disin- it disincentivizes people moving. But that's like... The 12th concern that these people have, that I shouldn't say these people, that the people we've observed that have been displaced from employment from from factors like offshoring and automation, that's not the primary concern that keeps them locked in place. And I understand what you're saying. And I think it's a very valid concern to be trying to be forward-looking to see what are we going to do when 6 million truck drivers get laid off because automated trucks aren't actually that hard. Like, what are we going to do with those people? They're not in upper income brackets. They don't have the ability to pick up and move and learn a new trade. They need to supply food for their family today. They need to pay rent next week. And they're not going to move because maybe there's a better job somewhere. At least that hasn't been the experience over the last 30 years or so. In the past... That could happen, you know. You look at the Great Depression; people um, p- packed up and moved because there's nothing left here, kind of thing. But since then, people have been uh, people on the lower half of the socioeconomic ladder have been much more static than people on the upper half. And actually, your ability to move to where the job is actually kind of is a forward-looking indicator of your socioeconomic status.
2: I could not agree with you more. You actually said. Everything I've written down um, that I was going to bring up next to uh, to pivot us into universal basic income,
1: but that's that's why I think the states. I, but that's my argument for why the states need to be handling it, not the federal government.
2: Well, I I think that that is an I think that that is a strong argument for that. But I think it's also a really strong argument for universal basic income because as you I think correctly identified. One of the big, um, it's not just so one of the factors is just familiarity, but there's also very practical, um, uh, there's a, there's a very practical, uh, barrier to relocating when you're at the lower end, um, economically speaking, You, you don't have the means to, you, you may not be able to fund that move. And more importantly, if you're someone who relies on your local community for, uh, support or or your local family for support you may not be able to take that sort of risk to to relocate um or if, if you need to like train for a new job you being able to take the time to train for a new job is also a an indication of um you, you need to, you need to have a certain amount of financial security to take any of these opportunities that that will get you to a place where you've got that uh, economic mobility, and I think that that is one of the the that's one of the primary arguments that I've seen for universal basic income is that it gives that financial security that allows people to relocate for jobs, or or retrain for jobs, or uh, take risks on new industries or startups or small businesses. Or even uh, one of the things I read that I thought was really interesting is that a universal basic income can eliminate the need to set a minimum wage because once you give the population as a whole a certain level of financial security, they no long there's no longer a worry of um, it, it, it. It allows market forces to prevent workers from being. Ex- Exploited because they now have the ability to walk away from a job that isn't paying them enough. Um, but I, I think ev- everything that, that you said about the some of the assumptions we make about the mobility of uh, and the ability to to change jobs of uh, lower income families is exactly uh, exactly right. Um, and I wouldn't to, to be clear, I personally. Uh, don't know if I would advocate for universal basic income when you when you take everything together, but it what you said struck me as a very strong argument for at least um, so basically what the motivation behind is, universal yeah, basic
0: income. Um, that, <laughs> that universal basic <laughs> income almost just, starts to make sense once everything, or at least a majority of things, start getting automated.
1: It doesn't. It stops making sense. It starts becoming a necessity. Yeah. If you don't, right, if you yeah. don't provide something for a lot of people who are losing their jobs, that's how you get things like revolutions.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. And we did talk a little bit about this. A uh, quick plug for our own podcast In season one, episode eight. We talked about automation with Dave Burrell and and just how automation itself is changing. It's no longer an assembly line um, where we just make it more efficient, but we're actually creating, you know, robotic hands and arms that are, that are being trained by a human being and then pre-programmed or they can just continue to do um, what a human being's hand was, was doing before. And so, you know, he talked about, used to be like you talked about, like jobs would be able to move, you know, the people who were, um, Putting uh, shoes on horses are now putting brakes on cars. Whereas, what happens to somebody who their entire livelihood is about driving and they no longer are needed?
1: Nobody needs to drive. Nobody needs to drive anything. It's not like they can go from driving horse carts to trucks to hovercraft or, you know, (laughs) Mr. Fusion powered um, DeLoreans. They just stop driving.
3: so revolution is unpleasant but historically don't we have a better precedent for producing good results
1: yes yes and no I can think
2: of quite a few revolutions that were that were
1: counterexamples to that well I think he means the United States produces better results by not revolting is that what you're saying Jim
3: well no I'm just saying you had presented the case that you know people when they don't I have worked. They start a revolution, and and I think a lot of the the critical change that's come to this nation, this great nation, has started with revolution. It started with people just saying we're not going to take it anymore, and and it led us into a lot of. You know, I, I'm not I'm not advocating for it. I'm just <laughs> making the comment that you know it's going to work it out. it's going to work out, and we're gonna we're gonna find our way regardless of whether or not the government is the one that found it.
1: Well Lamar- and I think Lamar- we're, we're General Lamar- Lamarck is now. dead. <laughs> the problem with revolution right. is it is it ruins everybody's lives for a while. And some a lot of people's lives permanently. People die in revolutions. And I think we can all agree that people dying is usually not a good thing.
2: Yeah, we found common
1: usually ground
0: again. Yeah. don't be north korea and and people dying generally is not a good thing all right
1: so how do how do we create a system where even the bottom half of the the income ladder still feels like it's worth for them to participate currently every currently there's a widespread belief in the quote-unquote american dream if you work hard and play by the rules you can get what you want let's you know that itself is kind of a up for debate in a lot of ways, but that's kind of what keeps the people in the bottom half of the income ladder going on a day-to-day basis. If that ceases to appear to be true, there there is plenty of historical precedent that an unruly... Those who are not earning a lot and don't see the system benefiting to them become unruly to the detriment of all, including themselves. And post-American Revolution, American uh, lifespans for about the next 30 or 40 years were dramatically shorter than they had been pre-Revolution. Medicine went backwards, people's health went backwards, lots of uh, infant mortality went down, and it took a while for America to actually rebound from the revolution to a point where they were on par or better than, better better off post-revolution. So, even if you say America exists as an amazing country because of that revolution, and we don't know what the counterfactual would be if we were still a British colony and the British Empire still existed, we don't know how amazing we'd be then. But if you say that we are amazing because of that revolution— uh, you do at least have to contend with the fact that there was a while that we were not that amazing because of that revolution, and it took a long time for it to work itself out.
2: Also, slavery probably would have ended sooner.
1: Yeah, that is a very good point. Britain got their act together about that a lot sooner. I, I just want to... So, kind of bringing this full circle, the reason we're talking about all of that is because taxes matter, and when you have social... When you have programs you wanna pay with, pay for, you have to pay with something and that money has to come from somewhere. Um, and I, I think, this is, not, this is not my thought. This is a thought that I have found a lot of validity in. Some people say America's original sin was slavery, um, but I, I have come to believe that America's original sin was greed and slavery was just built out of that greed. Um, and so were a lot of other things including the revolution the reason the revolution took place in large part was because they didn't like the taxes that Britain had imposed upon them despite the fact that those taxes were in some measure to pay for wars that were defending the colonists from the French and the Indians among others um, and so there's there's an inherent greed in the system and I think that is a disservice to all of us and that greed shows up as the CEO taking more pay than it's probably really worth but because he can just as much as it shows up as the guy at the very bottom fudging his time card because he can and no one's going to catch him and I think it shows up in government in that Whenever it comes time to tighten our belts, everybody says we know how to cut. We ought to cut, just not the program that I'm getting a handout from. And until we get to the point where we can say, you know what, you need to cut the program that benefits me, we're not going to get. We're not going to be able to have a government that can decrease a level of spending, and we're not going to have a government that can adequately and accurately spend well. Yeah, I I agree with that. So cut it all and start over. Bad idea. That's what Trump <laughs> is trying to do, and it's not going well by most people's estimations. But what are you talking,
3: well, talking about. about? Whoa, 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 whoa! It's <laughs> absolutely false. Don't be spreading fake news.
1: Oh no! It's not. It's not news, Jim. We all know already. <laughs>
3: Think about think about no. the South Andrew about the point you were just making when when they the, the Democratic governors were were finding they were trying to find soldiers to fight this this war so that they could keep slaves and w- what they had to do to motivate those soldiers and, you know and, and do you, are you familiar with this at all like do you know what what tactics
1: were used in the revolution the promise of land and money oh no 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 the Civil War oh in the Civil War
3: slavery. The Democratic Southern senators that that fought to keep the
1: the you know there was a bigger play in in the Antebellum South. You're talking about
3: well, we we joked about it that that you wish it wasn't cloaked. You, you wish that the the cause for states versus the the federal government wasn't so cloaked in this this horrible situation with slavery. But the the way they got soldiers is just elitism. It's creating this environment where they think that they they convinced these soldiers that they they can be better than an entire class of people and and if they can keep their slaves then no, the the dumbest white uh, the dumbest most unproductive unsuccessful white person is still going to be better than the absolute you know the 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 best of the the black race this is this is one of the the tactics the tactics used for for with hitler when when it was trying to keep Jews, you know, they they were jealous of the Jews, but they were, all he had to do is convince them, you know, get people on board and they can always be as a, as a, as a, uh uh, what the word is escaping me, but as a German citizen, uh, an Aryan, that can be the the least worst possible scenario, Aryan, is better than the the best possible case of the Jews. And this is, this is our sinful hearts. I mean, this is the way... Mm -hmm. People have motivated and people have, have uh, you know tried to manipulate throughout the centuries. It's a very oh, yeah. difficult set of parameters to work within, but it's a fact, and you know that's why I don't think we'll yeah. ever have that, that crystal clear answer.
2: But it's it's certainly a tactic that's that's come up over and over again. The idea of uh, uh you know it, the 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 people in charge keeping a a majority population in check by, by encouraging them to dehumanize either a minority population within that community or to, to uh, villainize some uh, external enemy. Um, Yeah. This tactic of, of pointing to the other and saying that they're inherently less human. um, I, I think that's, it's it's one of the most pervasive, one of the most persistent elements of uh, the human experience, unfortunately.
3: And they don't need to promise them a paycheck.
1: <laughs> right, yeah. You promise them an identity. Yeah.
2: But I bad. but I would argue that, that, you know, we we still So I, I I hesitate a little bit to make this comparison. Um, because I I certainly do not want to equate uh, I I, I don't want to falsely equate slavery with anything that is not nearly on that scale but I think that the tactic of trying to point to another group of people and say look over there they're the enemy um, is exactly what we're experiencing right now we've got we've got a I, I think a lot of people don't realize the extent to which uh, politicians on the right and the left benefit from the the polarization because they don't have to do a good job. They just have to point at the other side and, and say, look how much scarier they are. Uh, look how much, um, you know, you have to keep us in power because if you don't,
1: you're going to get come them
2: in and ruin yeah. everything, right? Exactly, and so that, I mean, we really are very actively encouraged in this country to uh, dehumanize the other side of the political spectrum, to imagine the other side as as evil or stupid or or
1: uh, um, robotic, yeah, mindless drones. It, you're absolutely right in that. They're the only people that benefit from a, from the only politicians that benefit from hum, from each side, understanding the humanity of the other side are moderates, are those that are willing to compromise about some things and find solutions. If you could become more and more extreme and you're, you can convince your base to become more and more extreme, you solidify your position and power. I agree with you, Casey
3: yeah and the polarization is is the worst of it all is that the, the, the end result is that the people who the, the voices the multitudes aren't going to have the voice because they're being they're being herded off into one camp or another where they're compromising so many things they don't even see it because of exactly what Casey just said and they're you know they're voting like you said Andrew in the beginning of the podcast they're going to the polls and they're pulling their straight tickets because they have to hold up the cause, and you know this is uh, this is why it's just such a, a big mess. This is not an easy problem to deal with because of everything that's going on. But ultimately, the the, the clear result that we're facing today is severe polarization, and and um, I, nobody wins. Nobody wins there. That that it, it's the opposite of unity, and it's you know whether it becomes a you know by state. Who knows what's going to happen with it, but.
2: Well, career point. politicians win.
1: They're the only winners. Yeah,
0: right. Like, these are all things that robots would say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and join us in a few weeks when we discuss electoral reform.
0: <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Yep. Ooh. All right. Well, hey, I'm gonna say let's uh, let's call this uh, a wrap for for this conversation. I think. I mean, not only did we talk about tax reform, but we talked about just kind of government in general. And, and um, I think they all it's, – it's amazing how you can kind of talk about one issue, but one issue is not something you can just talk about by itself. Uh, all of, There's so many other things and so many other facets that, that play into it. Um, so, yeah. Um, next week, we do have uh, – we're talking about healthcare. And uh, I'm looking forward to this one because I know that Andrew is really passionate about it and wrote this really long dissertation, um, speaking to a little bit about what he said here, but yeah, so any final th- anybody feel like they need to have a final thought before we we bring this conversation to an end? all
3: right well, well Joe okay. I <laughs> ask the question on my survey my initial survey you asked yes. the, you didn't want to repeat my. I guess it was shameful. You don't. You didn't read it. You just didn't read it.
0: I don't even remember what it was. (laughs) I mean, you you talked about the. You talked Uh, about the inadequacy of the of podcast hosts. Yeah, the of this podcast host. (laughs) Oh, this pod. Oh, okay. I would agree with you. (laughs) Inadequate. Uh, Okay. All right. Bad joke. Podcast hosts inadequate. (laughs) There it is. There it is. Just, Man. You know, to get the
3: thought process
0: going. So, yeah, Jim, it's hilarious. No. <laughs> so, what's
1: your what's your takeaway, Jim, uh, on where where tax policy ought to go? Just kind of like in a sentence and a half. I'll
3: do you better. Uh, I don't. I don't have the the background. I mean, I, I'm the guy that Casey was talking about when he started explaining the different positions. You know, some people you have to have a certain mind that's going to understand all that so I don't have clear answers on on how to get there so I'm willing to entertain any options that's why I'm not it's not a, a political thing I just think that I'm glad that there's somebody that's trying to bring about some kind of change or you know and there, there's cited reasons for that change so I want to see um, and, and however we do it I just want to see a more simplistic uh, environment and, and, and a less Complex government, uh, one that is we we don't have so much riding on it. You know, there, there's specific jobs the government should be doing. I believe, and I I think we way overstep that.
1: I would I would s- thank thank you, Jim. I think that's a good summation of your position of simpler is better. I would sum up my thoughts such that um, we need to disentangle the way we pay for the government from. Um, what the government does in some ways. And so I would like to see a tax policy that has no social engineering built into it automatically other than maybe some very, very simple uh, progressive ideals of, you know, if you earn more, you pay more, percent-wise kind of thing. Um, but outside of that, eliminate loopholes, keep it simple, make it as straightforward as possible, Um Dollars are fungible. Income should be fungible. I don't care if it came from an investment or if it came from selling your time or objects. Um, I think there should be at least a similarity between all of it. Um, and Casey, you get the last word. What is a give us a summation? So, <laughs> I guess I would
2: I would sum up my views by saying I am I am extremely confident that I have no idea how to fix uh, tax policy, but I, I, think really <laughs> <laughs> to, I think it's really important I think it's really important to keep the conversation open across party lines, and I think to keep the conversation going outside of just punditry I think, I think it's not as important for the four of us to come up with a thesis for how to fix tax policy uh, but I think it is really important that we can sit down as people who are not tax policy experts and speak intelligently and respectfully about the uh, d- different ideas that, that are being debated and, and will have a huge huge impact on the country excellent
0: yeah yeah, very well said. All right, Casey, do you want people to be able to find you anywhere online?
2: <laughs> no, I'm a recluse. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I guess, yeah, um, uh, my website links to everything else, so just uh, com. Okay, and that's R-U-L-E. R-U-L-E. Yeah, i, I okay. got it specified for uh, the, the central PA audience. It's not R-U-H-L. It's R-U-L-E. Mm-hmm. Yep,
0: <laughs> and uh, Jim, how about you? Where can people find you online?
3: I've just spent so much time and money trying to hide Joe. I, I can't see ruining that
0: now. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so you're the one that actually filled out the form and said yes. <laughs> I was like, all right. <laughs> no, I, I mean, no. I was. I thought you were saying like like I would be
3: antisocial. I thought I was going to be judged if I didn't say yeah. That's fine. But no, I don't have a need to be contacted.
0: <laughs> okay. that No, that's fine. I just was going off the form. I, I asked Casey because he hadn't filled out the form yet. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, hey, uh, thank you both for coming on here. I'm looking forward to our, our next two conversations. I think it's going to be really good.
1: Well, you know what? I'm so glad we had that conversation, Joe. I feel like uh, there was a lot said and hopefully a lot learned. Um, I'm really glad Casey and Jim were able to come on, um, you know, provide some different perspectives and and hopefully help educate our listeners and, and help them understand why this debate's important. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what we're here for, and also help them understand maybe where where they stand on the whole spectrum, the political spectrum. So, and it doesn't. I guess what I, I feel is like it doesn't really matter where you stand as long as you understand why you're there, and you can articulate a good defense of it. I'm cool with that. I just don't want people to be so concerned with ideological purity that they can't change their minds.
0: Yeah, and I think what's what's interesting is the the subject. It's it's funny. The subject is more than just um, how can we reform taxes. You know what I mean? Like it was absolutely you know what's the what's the point of what's the point of government and once you've got that figured out like how does that get played out and then once you got that figured out okay like how should the taxes reflect that and and it's it's always it's always easy to when you post things on Facebook or you hear sound bites from from media outlets for them to just kind of summarize it in one sentence but these topics are much more complex than that and I, I definitely came away from that discussion understanding a little bit more and and being appreciative of those who are in power and are, are tasked with the responsibility of not allowing our economy to a, to collapse.
1: <laughs> yeah it's it's definitely a huge responsibility and I think it if you're willing to think about it honestly, it's it's easy to see the new well it's easy to see how nuanced it could be put it that way that there's a lot of yeah. different sides to it a lot of different people have different opinions and very legitimate concerns um and i think you're absolutely right that fundamentally the argument often comes down to what is the job of the government and if we can't mm-hmm. answer that well it's really hard or if we can't agree on what that is it's really hard to come to an agreement on how to do it so <laughs> yeah
0: yeah that's that's so very true I also uh, the universal basic income is a new topic. Um, not from here, I actually heard it on a podcast, and I I appreciate that all of us are kind of like, you know, maybe you know let's at least see. You know, I'm curious to see how that uh, was it Finland. Uh, I'm I'm really curious to see how their experiment goes, and not only just because of the universal basic income, but because of how they're approaching their potential changes. I think it could really. Um, drastically change how governments uh how governments try out new things, and that could be pretty cool,
1: yeah, I agree it could be radical in a lot of ways, but hey, you know at one point in time the idea of an income tax was radical at one point in time, all sorts of things that we take for granted are radical now, so
0: America was radical <laughs> there
1: is a lot of truth to that, yeah, yeah,
0: all right, well, cool, um so next week, you should be able to tune in and hear us discussing healthcare. care. Um, I, I know that this is something that's near and dear to Andrew's heart. And so you're going to hear a lot of cool and interesting things that you maybe never have even thought of. I know that I'm already better for our discussions and understanding the, the system. And uh, it should be it should be really good. So, yeah, I'm not even going to tell you what to do next. If you wanted to, you could totally do all that cool podcasty stuff. Um, we're always okay with that, and you can support us, toss some money our way. Um, if not, that's cool, too. We're having fun, just enjoying doing this. Hopefully you're enjoying it. My wife said she enjoyed some of these. She just listened to another one today, and she said she actually enjoyed it. So that's that's always a positive for me.
1: Yeah, if your wife says <laughs> she's enjoyed it, that really means something. It really does. I mean, it
0: was Amy's, so, you know. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> she would enjoy that one. <laughs> Yeah. So, all right. Well, hey, um, if you have somebody you know that should be on this podcast, we have some openings coming up. We'd encourage you to go ahead and shoot us an email or have them contact us. We'd love to have them on. And if not, we'll catch you next time.